0: Welcome to the Friday's subscribers-only edition of The Hub Dialogues, the podcast of The Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of The Hub Dialogues. Hello, Hub subscribers. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, our regular weekly roundtable. This is a conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor chief We're going to dig into some of the big issues and ideas in the news this week, hopefully leave you with some new analysis and insights. Guys, lots of reaction to our roundtable pod last Friday. We focused a lot on the leadership race uh, in the Progressive Conservative Party. I want to do that again. Did I just call it the Progressive Conservative Party? Wow, I did. The Conservative Party of Canada. Um, another interesting week in this campaign. So let's begin with uh, you, Stuart, in Ottawa. Uh, give us a sense of, of what you think uh, listeners should have taken away from a campaign clearly that's heating up, that's got some edges on it, maybe in ways that are surprising people.
1: Yeah, so this is, if you follow the mainstream media, this is the nasty week um, of the campaign. And I, so, you know, believe what you want, but I would just be cautious about this because if you look back on every leadership race in the history of time, every election in the history of time, the media always wants to designate that things are getting nasty um, moment. And I I mean, there were some pretty um, tough exchanges back and forth, but I think that's kind of the nature of these things. And um, the only one that I thought wasn't just, you know, using someone's record was um, Polyev's attack on Patrick Brown, um, where he said, um, or his surrogates were saying, he will do anything to get elected and um you know that may or may not be true but it's kind of a judgment call the rest were kind of you know saying jean Shrey uh, was a liberal or um saying patrick brown was in favor of a carbon tax so mm-hmm. these are tough attacks but um you know if they're true i i think uh, you know all's fair
0: but guys isn't this all just like so canadian <laughs> it's
1: like oh no someone's throwing a school ball uh, you know a
0: snowball in the schoolyard you're not allowed to do that i mean sh- sean we've just gone through some you know brutal uh conservative uh leadership battles in the united states um you know little marco (laughs) we remember all the taunts i mean isn't isn't polly actually kind of being smart here in a way he's channeling an elbows up attitude that for better or worse isn't forming a lot of kind of conservative politics and how they work in north america this is not you know, uh, the Queensbury uh, debating set here, Uh, this is uh, a fight and you're in a fight and he's fighting.
2: Yeah, I I think there's something to that Rudyard that uh, Pierre Palliev's instincts as a fighter aren't a a vice in this race, they're a virtue. Um, It's something that uh, resonates with conservative voters who are feeling under siege by the culture, by the the government and and so on. But let me just make a point. We've talked in the past about how Polyev is able to communicate to conservative voters in a form of muscle memory, and that distinguishes him from some of the other leadership candidates who are kind of struggling to find their voice um, as conservatives. This week, Polyev put out an ad where he dismissed the idea of a a left-right divide and was, in effect, talking beyond conservatives. And I think what's so interesting about that is because he has so much built-in credibility as a conservative with conservatives, he's already in a position to be able to look beyond his core base. Juxtapose that with the last leadership campaign where Aaron O'Toole spent so much time to establish that he was a so-called true blue conservative, that when it became time to pivot to a broader audience, it just looked so insincere and inauthentic. So in in a lot of ways, what makes Polyev's conservative credentials so interesting is not that he has to double down, um, but that he has a lot of built-in credibility that actually enables him to to move on. And that that not only will serve him well in this leadership, but may surprise some people down the road, should he become the leader, that he has a a more flexibility and maneuverability in reaching uh, a broader uh, range of voters um, than a lot of the mainstream media is presently giving him credit for.
0: That's a fascinating insight, uh, Sean. I hadn't thought of that. And kind of also maybe jibes with this whole presentation Stuart of his campaign, the launch, you know, Pierre poly for prime minister, not for leader for prime minister. It's kind of like he's moving on to the general election. Now, the style, the rhetoric, the the messaging is that of a a federal election campaign, not a party leadership. And doesn't Stuart that put the other contenders really at a disadvantage here because they are going to have to spend some time, frankly, maybe Patrick Brown less Jean Charest, but proving some bona fides here with a
1: conservative membership that we all know is pretty far Mm center-right. Yeah, well, I think that's even um, intrinsically there because in the Harper government, you know, although Pierre Polyev is kind of seen by the media and commentators as some kind of like diminished figure because he was such a partisan attack dog kind of figure, Mm I mean, Patrick Brown was a backbencher. Like he was um, almost completely irrelevant in that government. And that, I think that dynamic is still there. Um, I think his political career since then has had ups and downs, but um, being mayor of Brampton isn't quite, it doesn't quite give you that gravitas. Um, so I think that's right. Um, I, I think that's a great point that Sean made about the left right um, spectrum, because you know someone else who was obsessed with that idea was also Preston Manning. Um, he would talk all the time about how you know real people don't think that way and, and i'd also say that have you guys ever met a single person in the real world who calls themselves a true blue conservative like it's not <laughs> something people self-describe Smurfs. as didn't, didn't, didn't <laughs> call themselves true blue? it's it's just one of those things that you know consultants come up with uh and maybe it works i don't know but it's it's not something real people say
0: sean are you a rocked ribbed conservative isn't that,
1: <laughs>
2: isn't that what the american uh, nomenclature is M- mitt romney people remember clumsily referred to himself as a severe conservative in 2012, (laughs) 2012, which signaled that he, he kind of didn't get it. Right. And I think that remains the biggest challenge for Mr. Shray this week. um, He signaled that he would not make any changes to gun laws. And I, I think his intention was to try to uh, reassure conservatives that he wouldn't bring in a, a long gun registry, which is something that the Polyev campaign has tried to attach to him, but because he doesn't have credibility on these issues, it ended up backfiring and then there was questions about whether he supports uh, some of the, the the gun restrictions that the current government has brought in place. So even when he's trying to appeal uh, to conservative voters because he lacks that uh, innate intrinsic uh, credibility, it, it it creates risks for him. But maybe I'll just put it to you uh, Rudyard, what, what are you thinking so far? And maybe just to kind of challenge something Stuart said, um, I take his point that, um, uh, that, well, Patrick Brown didn't have a lot of uh, a profile and role in Ottawa. I don't know. Maybe being the, the mayor of Brampton is a, a, a virtue in the sense that these are precisely the parts of, of the country where conservatives need to, to better perform. So as, as someone in the GTA, uh, uh, Rudyard, what, what do you think about the race mm-hmm. so far in general? And in particular, um, You know, what do you think of this idea that Brown may be uniquely positioned uh, to uh, to connect with those voters? in the parts of the country where uh, conservatives have underperformed now for at mm-hmm. least three election cycles?
0: Well, I mean, just think of Pete Buttigieg, I, must, I probably mispronounced that, but Mayor Pete, who, you know, surprised people, I think, in the, the Democratic race. There, there isn't a reason, I think, to rule people out simply on the basis of the fact that they're, you know, the mayor of uh, a pretty pretty big pretty diverse pretty complicated municipality in the form of, of Brampton and and I think Patrick Brown does have an, an exceptional network across the country in a lot of these um, ethnocultural communities that he's spent time a bit in the Jason Kenny model you know building up support but as we've talked previously guys on last week's episode you know a lot of this is going to come down to you know the horse trading between these campaigns and the respective strategy on on the the, the balloting night right stuart like this isn't gonna be a well ultimately it will be a winner take all but you get with each progress with each wave of voting you get this reallocation and and i guess what i wonder stuart is what you think of this idea of a a sharae brown i don't know kind of wedge or consensus in the party does that Is that big enough potentially to push you know Polyev into some position of vulnerability here where it's hard for him to amass a constituency that's going to add up to something greater than these two guys and obviously leslie lewin out there the social conservative candidate in the wings too another potential spoiler
1: yeah i think that is the big question and um the I, i think it's um not quite right to say the party because the party that jean chariot is appealing to and that patrick brown is appealing to it doesn't exist yet they have to make that party happen by selling these memberships and um Charest, i you know i i'm probably more pessimistic about his chances and the people that are out there for him but patrick brown Um, he is working in these areas that I think the media and, you know, those of us trying to follow with this don't have a good insight into, which is, you know, the ethnic communities that he's really popular in, um, Jagmeet Singh did this with his NDP leadership race. Um, he basically went into communities that he was familiar with signed up a lot of new members and won that way. Um, And it's only through, I think he has some political skill in that he's been able to navigate this where there was an existing party that didn't really vote for him. And he's had to sort of bridge it and appeal to all these people, the caucus members, the existing supporters. Um, That'll be the challenge for Brown if this does happen, but it's something, it's one of those things we might not even know until the night we'll get some sense of these memberships as they come in. Um, and through the summer we'll be trying to figure this out, but it is a little bit, you know, it makes for an exciting, you know, September evening when they do this leadership vote. Cause we won't really know. Sean, I want to give you the last word on this.
0: What's, uh, what are you kind of watching for over the next uh, week or period of time to try to think about the relative positioning and strength, of these campaigns or is it just you know too early is this the kind of the long slog uh for 90 days plus of, of membership sales and we really can't read too much into the race as it stands now
2: i think there's something to that of course um that for the time being the, the different campaigns are going to be focused on um on trying to grow the membership as, as stuart says but I'll just say, I think that the one, on substance, the one person I'll be looking to is Leslie and Lewis. Uh, she outperformed in the, in the last uh, leadership race, uh, as as listeners will know, in part because she occupied the social conservative lane without a lot of, um, of opposition or, or competition. Um, you know, it seems to me that her launch was pretty underwhelming this time. Um, she's more of a known quantity than she was last time. So there may be kind of less in, 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 inherent sort of interest out of curiosity as much as anything else. But it remains the case that there is a critical mass of voters within the conservative party membership who are motivated by the issues that she represents. And so, you know, I, I think she's someone who so far has, has been below the radar, but will ultimately play a bigger role in this leadership campaign um, than a, a lot in the mainstream media at this point um, may, may expect or predict.
0: Hey, thanks, Sean. Uh, so guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break. Um, we're going to come back, uh, after with, uh, Phil deck, who, uh, is one of our regular comments, wrote a terrific, uh, viewpoint essay for us this week, kind of on the future of money. So we're going to think kind of big thoughts about central banks and digital currency. It's part of what we want to do on this roundup podcast each week is give you a taste of some of the best insight and analysis that we've provided in the hub over the preceding seven days. So, Stuart, we'll say goodbye to you. Uh, Have a terrific weekend and look forward to my Monday edition of The Hub in my email inbox. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a Hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Okay, we are back from our break. Uh, Hub subscribers, this is Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor at large. And as I just mentioned, what we wanna start doing on these weekly roundups is bringing you a taste of some of what we think is the most interesting and insightful commentary we featured in the pages of the Hub website over the last seven days. And to kick off uh, this uh, new feature of the Roundup, it's a real pleasure to welcome onto the podcast Phil Deck. Uh, He's a serial software entrepreneur, the former CEO of Certicom and MKS. Uh, He's also served as a lead director of the Bank of Canada, and he is all ours for the next 15 minutes. Uh, Phil, great to welcome you here to the Hub Roundtable.
3: Nice to be here, Rudyard.
0: Well, let's dig into your piece. uh, You've written what Sean and I and the team thought was a really interesting essay on the kind of the future of money from the context of digital currencies, but not digital currencies that maybe many of our listeners are familiar with, like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Tether, digital currencies that could originate from central banks. Why do you think this could be a kind of game changer in the history of money?
3: Well, the impetus for the piece was really uh, some studies by central banks on issuing this kind of currency, and a lot of questions about well, what does that mean for cryptocurrencies? Is this competition? Is it is it a validation? Is it a is it somehow governments are trying to get around it? And the the point of the piece was was just to say these are are an entirely different animal that uh, appeal to an entirely different interest, and where the vast majority of people who hold Bitcoin are doing it because they think the limited supply will mean it will increase in value. Uh, And so they're there for volatility and change in value, hopefully for the upside. Whereas the entire merit of a central bank currency is that it won't change in value, that people can actually make contracts in it. They can transact in it, that it's really just a different version of the same old, uh, central bank currencies that they already have, it wouldn't have any different characteristics in terms of uh, its value, its its exchange rate, the the inflation that might be associated with it. It really goes to the opposite uh, design criteria. Whereas Bitcoin was a uh, a statement about lack of trust in central banks, and this is central banks trying to monetize or market their trust.
0: Sean, jump in here.
2: Well, so the big question, of course, then is if this notion is predicated on the idea of trust, is there a risk, Phil, um, that uh, the recent government decisions under the Emergencies Act, to an effect, reach into bank accounts and reach into um, people's digital assets? Does that do those risk eroding the trust that would be uh, inherent and necessary for something like a, a central bank issued a digital currency to? Uh, to flourish uh, in the modern market. Absolutely.
3: There couldn't be a more toxic uh, kind of marketing to kill the idea of any kind of trust where people assume that money held in bank accounts, people assume that money held in investment accounts is safe, that there's that that maybe in some criminal matter, after uh, a large extent of due process, they could have assets seized. You know, certainly people know that, but not a whim. Uh, of a government without any due process. Here we had the the Canadian Minister of Justice musing about the fact that they would seize the assets of people because they were Trump supporters. It's it's just, there's not even a question of whether there's a court process or any kind of legal basis for doing this. So yeah, why would you trust a government that that makes statements like that. Certainly, that there's and and then I I mentioned the other issue that uh, you know far away in the world and an entirely different end of the spectrum with central bank deposits of Russia. Central bank deposits were also seen as virtually sacra- sacrosanct, and the fact that politicians could seize the central bank assets for whatever you know great well-intentioned reasons. Uh, certainly changes the nature of what we think of as, as safe deposits. And it certainly encourages the, the kind of people who have been most enthusiastic about Bitcoin, who hmm. there's a conspiratorial streak in them. And, and uh, you know, they, they object to what they think. Uh, and, you know, with some plausible basis that central banks have inflated currencies that, that may reduce their value. And this is just another way of saying: see, you, you cannot trust central banks, you cannot trust governments, uh, and and uh, this is a, a better reason for Bitcoin. Now, having said that, a lot of the utility of a central bank currency would be for small, meaningless transactions. Not, not the st- You're not going to put all your assets in a central bank currency because, you know, the whole design criteria is it's not going to change in value. You know. You, hopefully it won't decline in value, but there's no prospect of it really increasing in value. So any significant amount you'll hold in investment accounts or bonds or stocks or something that 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 would be better, this kind of thing would be useful for the same kind of things that cash is useful for, for small day-to-day transactions where they could be virtually frictionless and, and easy to do. So, you know, but it would it would certainly limit the amount that people might want to put in it, it brings into the the aspect of okay, well, what if I do use it for a small transaction to support a political cause? Is is that now going on my file with the government? That's a that's a horrible question that people have to think about, and yeah. and so yeah, that that hurts the marketing.
0: So Phil, maybe just explain this a bit more about how how this actually works because you know I don't touch a lot of cash anymore. Like in my mind, like all my money is kind of digital right now. So. So what does this really mean when you say digital current, like, is this like a ledger like Bitcoin where you've got, you know, all the advantages of, you know, a a chain of transaction, like what, how is this different than the digital cash that I use every day right now in 2022?
3: So Bitcoin is an extremely elaborate protocol to avoid anyone having to centrally manage it. It's using mathematics and cryptography to try and eliminate any kind of central management, kind of an automatic uh, restriction on supply and, and uh, making sure no one in the center can do anything. Central bank currency would be the opposite. When you centrally manage something, it's easy. The whole cloud revolution is a statement about the fact that if you centralize the management of all, all kinds of processes, they're much more efficient and easy to, to implement. We went away from client server to the cloud because central management is easy. And that's true for central banks as well. If you have a central bank with a, a big database and suddenly you get two messages, uh, person A wants to transfer to person B and then person B says, yes, I want to take that transfer from A. It's easy for the, the manager in the center just to say, fine, I just moved the ownership of those assets from one person to another. I know there haven't been any there hasn't been any increase in assets. So I know there hasn't been any counterfeiting. It's very efficient. It's very fast. It sounds
0: bad, Phil, for the big banks though. Don't they do all this right now for us? Like, isn't this they a do. big part of their business?
3: They do, but uh, the, the banks have other ways of of maintaining people's assets. They have mortgages, they have asset accounts. So would this be competition for the major banks in taking away those small transactions and and certainly reducing their deposit base? Yeah. Absolutely, it would. Now, is a deposit base as important for banks as it was 50 years ago? Not nearly. Uh, they're, they're, they really cover people's larger financial picture much more. If they lost a lot of the small transactions, it, it probably wouldn't be the end of the world. It would be significant for the central banks because they make money from cash. So when we buy cash, that is physical currency from the Bank of Canada, they go and buy treasury bonds and they take, they earn the interest and that interest event eventually gets sent back minus some, some overhead uh, to the federal government. Uh, if, if they had a currency like this, there would likely be no interest paid on the balance that you have in your little crypto wallet, your little Bank of Canada app, and they would earn interest on that as well. So for the central bank and eventually the government, this would be a somewhat lucrative thing. That would be uh, interest that they're effectively taking away from the other banks by Uh, maintaining deposits with the central bank.
2: Let me put a question to you, Phil. At the Hub, we're interested in innovation, dynamism, economic competitiveness for Canada. Are there kind of first mover advantages for the Bank of Canada kind of jumping into this uh, world of of digital currencies? Are there economic opportunities for Canadian investors, Canadian businesses, if Canada opted to take a, a leadership role in developing and releasing uh, uh, a central bank digital currency.
3: I think it's hard to imagine many. I, I think it would reduce the friction, and, and I think this is where there could be a policy—a reasonable public policy objective here is that a lot of small merchants, for instance, uh, you know, people who are convenience store operators, people who deal in small transactions, the the kind of bank fees that they put up with for interact and credit card transactions is high. And certainly coming up with a a way of making virtually anonymous, that is anonymous as far as the two participants go, not necessarily to the the central bank in the middle, but having virtually anonymous transactions where I can go in and buy a loaf of bread for very little money with no friction. Yeah, there's a public policy objective where probably the banking industry has not been uh, that generous when it comes to dealing with small businesses that uh, transact small amounts, right? They don't have leverage. Their fees tend to be high. They, it tends to be a lucrative place for the banks. So it, it, there would be some good public policy outcome from making those transactions more efficient. And that probably wouldn't represent a massive privacy risk. The government knows I've bought a loaf of bread. I, I can I can deal with that. I, I may use a different method if I want to, you know, fund a, a political party. Uh, but yeah, there there is some there is some basis for doing it and and I think uh, you know as we all know that the Canadian banks are extremely profitable uh, and uh, the, the fees are high relative to those that other banks worldwide charge. I guess that's the, the kindest way to put it <laughs> uh, and so yeah I think for the economy there would be an efficiency in being able to conduct small transactions hmm you uh, know, in, in in, with less friction. And, and in that case, that, that things like Bitcoin are just never going to be a significant competition, the transaction cost tends to be a bit high, you have the whole prospect of crypto mining that, that is an essential part of that protocol, uh, you know, it, it, it ends up a bit like gold, where it's a store of value, a lot of people think, a lot of people hope it will increase in value, it can be used for transactions, but no one's really going to use gold for, mm-hmm. for many transactions. And I, and I suspect that that will continue to be the role for Bitcoin as well. As, uh, as a way people hope will, will um, increase in value and, and make a capital gain, I don't think most people are in it for the transactions, unless you're trying to export money from a regime that, uh, that might confiscate it. So there is either the illicit or... Uh, you know, urgent political need that uh, often facilitates Bitcoin, but that's not that's not something that Canadians would use on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis.
0: A nice little kind of Canadian backstory here, Phil, if you could just share with listeners, your your company that you were the CEO of Certicom has like a role in the history of Bitcoin, which I think is kind of cool.
3: Well, of course, Certicom uh, it, in the 90s tried to promote the idea of digital signatures and authentication and and uh, these kind of protocols. And and uh, we invented an algorithm called the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm. That is the algorithm that now secures Bitcoin. Uh, it's virtually a worldwide standard uh, invented by scientists at the University of Waterloo. Of course, we patented it in 1995. Uh, that patent was eventually acquired by Research in Motion when they acquired the company, but has long expired. And It'd be hard to know who to send the patent bill to even <laughs> if it was still existing. So, but yeah. yes, Canada, Canadian uh, cryptographers had a big role in in uh, the development of these protocols.
0: Cool. And just uh, ask you like an off the wall question here, like quantum computing immensely powerful, huge potential here both for encryption but also de-encryption. So you've got a whole background in crypto cryptographic analysis and research like is there a case suddenly that bitcoin one day could be hacked by a quantum computer
3: well every the 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 kind of uh cryptographic scheme bitcoin requires is called public key and elliptic curve cryptography is just one version of public key but all public key algorithms require on the ability to take logarithms in finite fields—that's a hard mathematical problem. You can exponentiate easily; the, the reverse of that is to take a logarithm, and that's hard. Uh, but it's not hard once you scale quantum computers. And there's an asymmetry in that the uh, no one's going to have a quantum computer in their cell phone. So that the kind of algorithm that is implemented on a cell phone, uh, you know, could be could be reversed by quantum computers. And there's existential risk because there's a, a cascading uh, uh, authentication tree in most of these systems. And uh, if those one-way mathematical algorithms could be reversed, uh, then that would put the whole system at jeopardy. That's not a near-term risk, but it's a, it's a medium-term risk. Hmm. Uh, and cryptographers around the world have always known that as quantum scales, all these public key schemes are at risk. Uh, It's another reason that a a central bank currency, because of central management, wouldn't require public key.
0: Yeah. Uh,
3: It's really required to build the kind of distributed ledger system that uh, that other algorithms are based on. So, uh, yeah, there's an existential risk. It's not tomorrow, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it's something you can imagine. uh, uh, Some sovereign power with immense computing power. We can think of some of those who might want (laughs) to undermine. Uh, a cryptocurrency could be could be working on
0: wow sorry it was a segue there but it's a fascinating one just to give our listeners a little peek into some of your very specific areas of expertise let me just wrap up by asking you i'm sold on this idea of a digital currency i love the idea of getting visa and mastercard out of these big you know transaction to interact fees for all these small merchants um you know i'm not too worried about the government coming to my bank account i, I like the idea of Low cost, frictionless, you know, commerce with, with, with you, Phil, with you, Sean. So, w- when is this happening? Maybe why hasn't it happened already? Are we going to see it soon? Uh, you're a former lead director of the Bank of Canada. I know you do not speak for the bank now in any way, shape, or form, but what's your sense of where the bank's thinking is at on this?
3: I'd say the major obstacle to rolling this out is that it really has to be implemented by the government. <laughs> okay. And, uh, uh, this isn't really a place for the commercial sector, right? The, the government is never going to have uh, commercial entities really involved in its currency. Uh, they don't now uh, and, they, and they wouldn't. And, and most companies that might want to implement a scheme like this would, would want to make money from it somehow. And that probably wouldn't work in a government context. So this is something where central banks would have to implement it themselves. And that's, uh, you know, bureaucracies are great for a lot of things, uh, inventing and rolling out uh, significant financial systems is not, is not, uh, doesn't happen quickly.
0: I think there's a payroll system that continues to have a few, a few bumps and, uh, and yeah. tweaks that need it. Sean, and, that one, uh, and that
3: one, even you have help from outsiders, this yeah. one, this one, they, they'd really have to do it in-house.
0: Yeah, Sean, any final reflection you want to leave our our listeners with? I know it's been interesting at the Hub that we found there's a lot of interest in kind of cryptocurrency and its intersection with kind of politics and these ideas around kind of freedom and personal liberty and the, the future of the state.
2: I think that's right. We had a, a, one of our episodes on Hub Dialogues this week was with the author of a new book about Elon Musk, who, of course, is personally associated with uh, digital currencies in general and, and issues of crypto in particular. As you said, there's a lot of energy and momentum, um, and so it's just great to be able to draw on Phil's expertise. What a ride this conversation has been from conservative politics to quantum to computing to, to digital currencies. <laughs> Phil, uh, it's been so great to to get your your thoughts and perspective, and to have you um, publishing at the Hub. I mean, this is the most exciting part of this project, isn't it, Rudyard? That we're bringing in yeah. academics, um, business leaders, entrepreneurs. I mean, the, the the breadth and depth of our contributors is a thing that uh, I think is that really at the strength of of what we're doing.
0: Great, thanks so much, Phil. Thanks for coming on the program, guys. That's a wrap, and for our listeners. We'll do this all again Friday. Please share this podcast uh, with your friends and rate us in the whatever podcast store you get your audio from. So thanks so much for being a listener, a subscriber, for supporting the Hub and what we're all about, which is uh, better ideas for the future. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also... Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.